Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am Mike Aglialoro. We're doing a little special random sports thoughts tonight. I am, uh, first off, I want to thank everybody for listening to us on all our various podcasting outlets, whether it is Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Anchor, Bullhorn. We thank you for joining us. Alongside me, I'm joined by Cousin David Aglialoro. Cousin David, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Had a long week. Glad it's Friday. Yeah. Glad it's just glad it's the end of the week. <laughs> I got you, man. I got you. And, you know, we came here a few weeks ago at kind of the onset of the A&E Biography WBE series, eight profiles of eight different wrestlers, many of whom me. In, me and David grew up with, so we knew a lot of the stories. And we also have the Dark Side of the Ring, which was just set to premiere as we were coming on the last time. And now we're about we're about six weeks into the Dark Side of the Ring's first half of the third season, and we only have one any biography left to go this week. So we're going to talk a little bit about what we've seen so far, um, what is yet to come, and you know we'll talk about some of the other wrestling type documentaries that are out there that we've seen over the years. I know we mentioned a few of them last week, but when I got off the air, I realized that we had left a bunch of them out. So we'll talk about that. Uh, let me pull it up. Here. We'll start with the dark side of the ring. Because that's okay. Yeah, we'll start with dark side of the ring. And obviously the season kicked off with the two-part Brian Pillman episode. Then we kind of left pro wrestling for a minute, as Jim Cornette would say, with the <laughs> ultra-violence of... Nick Gage, or as Cornette would call him, the bank-addicted drug robber. And if you watch this show, you realize <laughs> it's it's really not that far off from what it is. You know, it's it's funny to talk about this. And Cousin David, I know you didn't see this episode. Like, I'm 38 years old. You're going to be 37 years old in September. I've realized over the last few years that I've gotten to the point in my life where I start to sound like my parents did when I was a kid watching some of the shit that's out here. And it's like. I, th I think he cut off Mike. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've definitely been ta uh, talking like my parents the last couple of years. So I can definitely hear that. I, th yeah. I think he cut off Mike. Oh, did I? Yeah. All right. Well, as I started, I don't know how much of that you heard, but I'm just going to go again. I'm, I'm, we're not cutting anything here. We're just going to keep going tonight because I'm just sure I'll get going. cut off a couple times. Yeah. All right. So as I started to say, you know, I'm 38. Cousin David's going to be 37 in September. And I've kind of reached the point in my life where I start to feel like I sound similar to my parents did when I was a kid watching some of this shit that's out today. Because I remember being... 10, 11, 12, 13, however old I was watching the Bret Hart's and the Shawn Michaels and, you know, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon and Kevin Nash and Steve Austin and Mick Foley. And my parents would come in and look at them and be like, why are you watching this garbage? Why are you watching this crap? And David, I know your parents were always a little more open minded to it and let you watch it. And I was always envious of that when I was a kid. But then I watched this Nick, Ga Nick Gage dark side of the ring. And you want to talk about garbage wrestling at its finest. Like, we grew up with ECW. You know what I mean? And that was called yeah. the garbage. That was called the garbage wrestling at the time. 
But then you watch this Nick Gage, who I can't, they showed one match that, I, oh, I can't remember exactly what he was, but he wound up accidentally impaling himself in a match. And they're trying to get him to go to the hospital, and he just wants to go back in the ring. And meanwhile, half his guts are coming out under his shirt. Oh, it's ridiculous. And then you got John Moxley doing commentary for this. John Moxley, of course, used to be Dean Ambrose in WWE. And I liked Dean Ambrose from what I saw in WWE. I thought he, re he reminded me of Mick Foley in many ways. But then, you know, I've, I watched some of his matches since he left WWE to go to AEW. And I got to tell you, I really wasn't impressed by him. The, the match that really turned me off to AEW was a, um, they call it a lights out match. It was a non-sanctioned match between Moxley and Kenny Omega at AEW Revo Revolution last year. And bottom line is it was supposed to be a hardcore match. And it was just one of the most phony looking things you've ever seen in your entire life. And I realized then that the stuff I liked as a kid, the wrestlers of today looked at that stuff and took all the worst lessons possible out of it. Right. And don't do anything in terms of psychology and don't do anything that really makes a, a lick of sense when you're doing this stuff. Because at one point they, they pulled out a bed of barbed wire that you could clearly tell was rigged so it wouldn't hurt them because you're looking at this bed of barbed wire and you're thinking all right if these two fall into this bed of barbed wire they they're never going to get out of this thing alive so of course these guys fall into the barbed wire and they get out of the barbed wire and then nobody's bleeding at all now david did i cut out again you didn't no you're okay good. Now, david if you fall into a bed of barbed wire you would expect to be some blood, right? Um, I've seen Mick Foley and Terry Funk wrestle in some sort of barbed wire, and they were pretty bloody. These guys, these these two guys, had more blood on them in the first five minutes of the match than they did when they fell into this bed of barbed wire, and that was a half hour after the match started. Yeah, so they just don't know how to do it. They don't know what they're doing, but then you listen to John Moxley talk about this Nick Gage guy, like they idolized him, like he was he idolized him and like the reaction that he would get for in the connection that he had with the crowd. Vince McMahon would kill for a guy like this. And then he got Cornette. Um, because I listened to Cornette that week and Cornette going, if anybody brought this Nick Gage guy to Vince McMahon, he would kick him in the ass and run him out of the office and fire him for even suggesting it. So just this whole Nick Gage episode was just, it was well done because those guys know how to do a good documentary, but the actual subject itself, nah, man, nah, man. And this guy got himself so strung out on painkillers that he, ro he attempted to rob a bank. This guy's gimmick was he would wear a mask, uh, a uh, bandana over his face to the ring. And then when he's robbing the bank, he's got nothing covering his face. And he's staring dead at the freaking security camera. So that was stupid. And then this idiot knows he's about to go to jail. So he goes to Atlantic City for three days and then turns himself in. So real smart guy there. So that was Nick Cage. And then, and then you had the collision in Korea, which was a pretty good episode, I thought. The whole thing was... I didn't um, like it. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was weird just to hear Scott Norton and... Um, Two Cold Scorpio talk about 
the tensions they felt going into Korea and everything, even though that story that Two Cold Scorpio told about um, almost killing uh, Road Warrior Hawk. Not sure I really buy that one, if I'm being honest. But um, yeah, that was crazy. One thing about that. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. ahead. Let me me ask one thing, because I haven't I, I I haven't been able to find this answer. And maybe if maybe if you like can answer this. Number one, why in the world did like they do this? Was it just basic for media exposure? I think I heard that that it was for media. And number two, how did they get in the country? <laughs> I don't understand that. Nobody can get into North Korea except maybe Dennis Rodman. But like, well, um, well, I, how did I do th- guys do that. I yeah. do think it was for um, exposure, like you said. But also, and I'm looking up the guy's name. But the guy, um, what's his name? What's his name? He, he fought, did, okay, uh, Antonio Inoki. Antonio Inoki. New big, Japan Wrestling, right? Yeah. New big, Japan Wrestling, yeah. A legend of Japanese wrestling. He had ties to Korea. So his he had a... Korea, right, yeah. No, 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 his no, no. Not his, not his, I, I don't necessarily think it was his father. The guy who trained him... Um, Ricky Dozian, Ricky Dozian, I believe was his name. He was right. Yeah. But he hid the fact that he was Korean because he didn't want to be vilified in Japan. And this this dark side of the ring episode made you think that the Yakuza killed him when they found out he was Korean. Right. So, yeah. So I do think um, Bischoff, this was 94, 95. This was no, this was 95. Actually, I'm looking at the date right now. This was a good four or five months before WCW Nitro premiered. So right. you think about it, Hogan had only been with the company for a year, which means Bischoff had only been in charge for maybe a full year, maybe a year and a half at that point. So he's still trying to put WCW, establish WCW as a national brand. So from them, it probably was about publicity. And you love the idea that they asked Hogan first. and. Um, I can't remember Anoki's exact answer, but you could tell he was he was choosing his words very carefully, saying Hulk Hogan is a very careful man or something like that. Basically to say, yeah, Hogan said that's going to be a no for me, brother. Um, and then they asked Flair to do it. And um, in terms of how they got into Korea, I'm sure somebody in Korea thought it would be good for their public perception to open the door to outsiders. But of course, Bischoff said that the U.S. government told them not to go. Right, they said, right. We, that's yeah, what, right. Yeah, they told them not to go. And Bishop was just like, well, we're just going to go anyway. Good idea. But Good idea. But, 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 but see, that's something I don't understand. Like, like and, and maybe this is too far off the page and this no, is no, the no. point of this stuff. But it's like you go into North Korea. You mm. then get paid by North Korea. And now you're going to bring that money out of the country and try to come back into the U.S. I don't know how I don't know how everybody could think that that could just work out. I mean, North Korea is not exactly a country that's trading with other nations. So I don't understand why they thought this was a good idea. (laughs) Well, I I mean, money is money. I don't really know about that part of it. But if you remember correctly, it's not like they went straight from the United States to Korea. They. They landed in Japan and they took a they right. took a um, charter flight there and they went back to Japan after Korea. So that was that was probably part of it. But the fact that they got Muhammad Ali 
in this as like the guest referee or the master of ceremonies or whatever the hell he was. That probably that's, helped. Yeah, that's crazy in and of itself. And this was this was '95, so this was a year before the Olympics in Atlanta when the Parkinson's was really starting to set and it seemed like he still had some control over his faculties at that point. Right. So, but the idea that the matches start, you have this huge crowd, one of the biggest crowds ever recorded uh, for a wrestling event. Um, I'm looking for the figures now. 150,000 people for the first day, 165,000 for the second day. They go into the matches and everybody's sitting on their hands and knees, not knowing what to make of any of this stuff. Nobody's responding to any of it. And I I think it was Norton saying that. I I can't remember if it was Norton saying, but somebody implied that they were like all forced to be there under threat of death, which is crazy to think about. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me either. But uh, yeah, that's still intense to think about. But you know, it had a somewhat happy ending because, you know, the last match of the night was Ric Flair and Inoki and the idea that that's the match that brings everybody to their feet and everything. And that's the one that gets everybody really into it. I mean, it's Ric Flair, for God's sakes. Of course, he's the one you get into. Well, I I, I, I think also somebody let out that Naoki's trainer, I guess, was was. Korean, pretty much like you said, and that and that he was uh, killed by the Japanese. Oh yeah, yeah. So, and, well, so they that's said why they started cheering yeah. for him. They they actually said in the documentary that that was the reason why the Korean crowd was more on his side because they knew he had that connection to Ricky Dozian. Right, right. I, I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that name incorrectly, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that was a crazy documentary. And then while this is going on, we'll switch gears for a minute here because we had talked about some of uh, the A&E biographies when we went on last time. Obviously, we talked we talked a little bit about the Stone Cold one. We talked about the Roddy Piper one. Obviously, we went in depth on the Macho Man one. Uh, the only one of these um, A&E shows that I haven't seen was the Booker T one. But I saw the Shawn Michaels one. Ultimate Warrior was funny, and you pointed this out earlier today, even though Cornette had mentioned this a few times on his show. The Ultimate Warrior episode was apparently supposed to be the finale of these A&E biographies. They moved it up just to be on four days ahead of Dark Side of the Rings Ultimate Warrior episode. So we have that, and we have the McFoley episode. Uh, Before we talk about the rest of them, so you saw the two Ultimate Warrior um, documentaries, right? I did. I just watched the dark side one now a couple yeah. hours ago. Uh, well, I'll let you start on this one. What, what did you think of these two? Um, I thought it was very interesting that dark side got his first wife and yeah. that WWE got the second wife and the mm-hmm. two kids. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely, um, it definitely uh, watching them side by side. It was definitely a contrast. Oh, yeah. um, but What's interesting is that, you know, WWE, you know, even, even though they put out a very, you know, I wouldn't call it real. I would call it somewhat accurate, but with a little bit of fluff pieces, because I guess they made up. Um, and I can understand why they put it out like that. But I wouldn't really call I wouldn't really call the WWE innocent here because 
you know, in 2005 or 2006, you know, they actually put out a DVD about the warrior, which was highly critical. So it's, it was kind of funny watching, watching the dark side one. Cause it's like WWE put something out like this already mm-hmm. and then tried to change history and said, Oh, but we all made up, you know? And it's just like, I just think, I just think the dark side one was a, a little bit more. Was it negative? Yes. Was it a little more real? Yes. I wish, I wish both films could kind of be linked maybe mm. together and, and make one big, mo- one big you know, a film. And that would have been probably a better thing to get all, to basically get all views from it. Um, I did find in, I did find it interesting and you could, Correct me if I'm wrong. The WWE one and both Dark Side didn't show any footage from Warriors WCW time. Yeah, that was which, um, which, I, which I thought I, was interesting. Yeah. And I know, and obviously, and and obviously, I know what you're going to say. It was a disaster, but it would have been well, an interesting to sort of delve into that because there was that 25 minute monologue that went 20 minutes over. Oh yeah, it was only it was supposed to be. I I, I read yeah. about this earlier the week. It was supposed to be seven minutes and wound up going almost a half hour. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. They had to cut stuff out. But then also, you want to talk about the WCW run that match at Halloween Havoc? I think oh. well, I well, I actually man, watched I it live. It's well, terrible. here's the here's the thing. Maybe it wasn't that match. Maybe it was in the buildup to that match where they had a trap door in the ring that Warriors yes. was supposed to come out in, in the ring through the trap door and British Bulldog breaks his back landing on that. And that basically yep. caused the drug addiction that led to his overdose. Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. yeah. So I, there's, a, there's a whole myriad of reasons why they would not want to go into that one because it was not successful. But I would like to hear the one thing I would like to hear about it. Wh- why did he choose to do it in the first place? Because in hindsight, he seems pretty adamant and it's hard for anybody to really look back at his run and think any different that the only reason Warrior was brought back was so Hulk Hogan could get his win back. So why oh, did he go yeah. along with it? Money. Well, yeah, okay, but I mean, the warrior is supposed to be a bastion of morals and ideals. If you if you believe the words of Jim Helwig, so if you think that you you really need the money that badly, you know well, what's I, going on here. I I don't think I don't. I mean, I don't I don't know what sort of was in his head, but I don't yeah. think w, I, I think WCW at that time was 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 good on some things it was coming out in 96 it was coming out in 97 that's when the high points were when it got to 98 it was mostly smoke and mirrors oh sure sure, sure. it was still getting high ratings but you could see you could kind of see the gas starting to come down because you know stone cold came alive well i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you there i'm gonna i I, I apologize but i'm gonna stop you there for a second at the time warrior came back that was when WWE was starting to pull away in the war because if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember the exact month he came back. He comes back after Mick Foley goes through the cell in Hell in a Cell. Austin wins the title back from Kane the next night. And we're basically off to the races because if you remember that September of 98, that's when Austin's driving in the ring in the Zamboni. That's when Austin's filling up the Corvette Um. with cement. That's the ratings that's when, were still simple. Yeah, but Mike, 
and not to interrupt you, the ratings. Oh, I'm not saying I'm not saying they weren't similar. similar. I was just saying you could kind of see that WWE was starting to pull away at that point. You know what I mean? I, they might have been I, similar, but they weren't exactly trading victories. Because if I remember no, correctly, I, they, yeah, well, you, from what I remember, the last two times that WCW won in the ratings was the night that Ric Flair came back to reform the Horsemen. And then right. the night after Halloween Havoc, because of that Warrior Hogan match, remember, they went off the air as the Diamond Dallas Page Goldberg match was starting. So they put that match on free TV the next night on Nitro. And that, right. was, the la that was the last night that WCW won the ratings. I see. I, I mean, you might be right. See, but but I I, I guess I, I guess watching it live when I was a little kid like that, I always thought the man. I always thought mankind winning it on January fourth of ninety nine. Oh yeah, that cemented kind of pulled away. Well, that so cemented I, it. Yeah. But I'm saying I I totally agree with you. That cemented it. But you could kind of see the writing on the wall that WCW was starting to fall behind a little bit because right. by that point in ninety eight. DX was running full steam. Rock, you right. could kind of see him start to go in what direction he would wind up going in. Stone right. Cold, like I said, he was doing all these things to McMahon. Bedpan McMahon happened at some point in October of that month. Mr. Sacco was born in that time. So you right. had all right. these things going on, and WCW really is kind of running on fumes at that point. The smoke and mirrors that you said was really starting to come out around that point. You know what I mean? And, and then mix that with... And then mix, and then mix basically the smoke and mirrors with this just total unorganized event of Nitro. Them, them, you know, writing basic, writing the script, you know, minute by minute. People not even knowing what's happening. Them flying mm -hmm. in wrestlers like Jeff Jarrett and Bret Hart, flying them in first class, and not even having them, you know, wrestle that night. I mean, so I mean, I could to bring this back to Warrior. I could see them kind of trying to get him to come back and say, look, we're actually going to do X, Y, and Z. And then by the time they bring him back and then Hogan goes, well, you know, that isn't going to work for me, brother. And then yeah. like two weeks later, they're doing some, they're doing something else. So it's like they, pro you know, what ultimate warrior probably was told and was, and what they agreed upon oh, sure, the sure, framework sure. was, 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 was going to be was just wrong and it's like warrior probably should have known that because hogan as you know had creative control in his contract mm -hmm. so anything that they did and you actually knew that warrior was going to work with hogan so anything so anything that was going to happen had to get hogan's approval so warrior i can understand why he went back for the two i, I think he got paid 250 for like two months 250k which is not a bad salary no definitely months. not mm-hmm but but it's like, I I also blame Bischoff and WCW because it's like they just did not know what they were doing, and it's kind of sad because it's like the you know the you know the red and the black the Wolf Pack was getting really high ratings, and then they just kind of cut them off because Hogan well, didn't like it. I'll tell you I'll tell you this to go to that point. If you've ever seen WWE had this really great series that I think may still be on WWE uh, WWE Network called Legends of Wrestling. It's a roundtable discussion about certain topics from the past, and one of them was the NWO. And the panelists, uh, Gene Okerlund, he was the host, uh, Michael Hayes, J.J. Dillon, Jim Ross, and Kevin Nash. 
And Kevin Nash, you know, they, they started talking about the Wolf Pack. And Nash goes, you know, the night that, and I know you remember this, the night that Sting joined the Wolf Pack, you could feel the electricity from that crowd when that happened. That was I one of the big live. That was so one did one I. Of the best nights. That oh, was yeah. One of the best nights. That was one of the biggest reactions WCW got from from 98 through the end of uh, them closing the doors. So you think of the momentum that that group had, like even though like you think of the talent that was on there, it was Nash. It was Savage. Unfortunately, Savage had a knee injury and was out for most of the year. Luger, Sting. Conan. At one Conan, at one point they had Kurt Henning, but he yep. turned and went back to NWO White and Black. And Conan, maybe not the biggest star in the world. Conan was over at that point. Everybody, oh, yeah. everybody liked Conan at that point. He would do the chance with the crowd and everything. He was over. So you have Nash Sting, Luger, and Conan. That's a star-studded four-man group right there. That's Hogan something was pissed off. Hogan yeah. was pissed off. Oh, yeah. Hogan. <laughs> well, well and, and Nash even says, you know, if you think about it, okay, so we're splitting the groups up. You would think Hall would come with me and Savage would go with Hogan. But Hogan turns around and goes, I want Hall. And well, I go, well, why would Hall go with you? Right. Why would that happen? So you got that. And then Nash makes the comment, and it's so true. You never saw a war games between Wolfpack and NWO Hogan. You never saw the big battle between those two groups. If that would have happened, it would have I, I think it would have opened the door to a whole lot of things. Cause I remember this like I it had been so long since I seen this. I completely forgot about it. There was one night where it was the four of them. And remember at this point, NWO white and black had like 17 members. And I don't know what happened during this particular episode but the four of them storm nwo white and black's dressing room and they completely lay out like 13 guys just the four of them and the fans were going nuts while this was happening if you think it's believable that these four guys can take out everybody nwo white and black has maybe you should do something with that you know what i mean but yeah. I, 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 the first night that the Wolfpack formed, and I can't remember what shoot interview it was that it, uh, Nash talked about this. They come out to the ring. They're talking about solidarity, strength in numbers. We're going to stick together. And then the very next segment, Conan has a match against somebody in NWO White and Black, and he gets jumped by outside interference, and the other guys in the Wolfpack don't come out. Right. So I remember that, Kevin Nash doing talking about this. Yeah, yeah, it was dumb. Yeah. So and and he's right. The moment something like that happens, you start thinking, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? Did did the person who locked Savage in the dressing room in WrestleMania four come back? What what is and that's this? Part of the problem, and that's yeah. and see that's and that's part of the problem. And I'm sorry, we're actually getting off topic, but yeah, I mean, you knew it was gonna. We were gonna get off topic at least <laughs> once tonight, so that's fine. <laughs> This is where WWE, when whenever they found something to bring it back to mankind with Mr. Sacco or Vince McMahon or or The Rock, WWE just ran with it, yeah. and they and they stepped on the pedal and they didn't let go. And that was with mankind, The Rock, Stone Cold, all these wrestlers. They just stepped on stepped on the gas. Yep. WCW when they found something like a Goldberg, like a 
like a wolf pack, like a Chris Jericho, like the cruiserweights, mm-hmm. you know, all, all, all these people. They had maybe two months and then Hulk Hogan or Eric Bischoff got pissed off and they were just cut off. And yeah. it was like, you got to do what's good for business. And it's like WCW had like, well, yeah, that's true. But, 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 and then the famous, but, and then they screw it up. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And this, this will be the last thing we, we go on this point, And then we'll go back to what we were talking about. I looked it up. We were talking about when warrior came back in 98, he came back sometime in May of 98. And if you look at the ratings here, so April 13th was the night that you had Austin versus McMahon with Dude Love coming out at the end after Austin had one hand tied behind his back. And that was the first night that WBF won the ratings in 83 weeks at that point. Nitro right. wins the ratings back the next week. Raw wins the next two weeks. They tie after that. And then sometime during this time is when Warrior comes back. WBF wins on May 15th. May 25th, two companies tie. WBF wins the next five weeks in a row. July 6th, 1998, if I am not mistaken, that is the night that Goldberg won the title from Hogan. Yep, so Goldberg. they won, yep, they won that they won that week. Raw wins the next four weeks. Nitro takes the next three weeks. The next two weeks was the U.S. Open, so there was no Monday Night Raw. So, obviously, Nitro puts up its best numbers of the year, actually, to that point. They got a 6 in the ratings, and they got a 5.5. Those are, yes, those are Nitro's best ratings of the year to that point. And then the next week, Raw comes back. They win the ratings. Or, excuse me. Next week, Raw comes back. Nitro still wins the ratings. Then Raw wins the next week. The Nitro wins the next week, which I'm guessing September 28th, if I had to pick, that was probably the Ric Flair Horseman reformation. So there's that. Raw wins the next three weeks. October 26th is the night that they play Halloween Havoc's uh, DDP versus uh, Goldberg match. And then Nitro never regains the ratings lead again. Wow. Yeah. So, like I said, at the time Warrior came back, Raw was starting to catch up, and Raw was starting to gain a lot of steam at that point. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, we'll get off of this, and we'll go back to the actual documentaries here. These two documentaries, I think, were very different than what I thought I was going to get going into it. Um, I will give any biography credit on one thing. I thought that documentary was a lot more scathing against Warrior than I really thought it was going to be, seeing as how, you know, Warrior made peace with McMahon after his death. Dana Warrior is now a spokesman and ambassador for the company with the Warrior Award and all that stuff. And they made her look kind of good. They made the kids look good and everything. They didn't pull any punches on the warrior, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that they showed the conservative speeches and the stuff that he did very controversially at those motivational speeches that he did the last 10 years of his life, I was kind of surprised they went into it that in-depth. So I give them credit for not really pulling punches. As Cornette pointed out, you know, it's very telling 
obviously, you know, last time we talked about this, we talked about the the talking heads that they have in these and that you don't really see a lot of contemporaries in these. You see a lot of podcasters. You see a lot of authors, uh, a lot of people from today's era in this. And I, I'll give Peter Rosenberg some credit here. I actually I like Peter Rosenberg in these. I thought he's come out the best out of all these talking heads that have nothing to do with the wrestling business at the time that they were talking about. I think he's come out the best out of all of them. The one who's come out the worst. Yeah. Yeah. The one who's come out the worst out of all of them. And I don't remember his name. He's an author. He's bald. His first name is David. He has glasses. He's been in every one of them. Brian Last, uh, Jim Cornette's co-host, I don't know which Andre the Giant documentary it was. I think, but I, I think A and E had done an Andre the Giant documentary a couple years ago. Apparently, he was in that, and he just told a bunch of lies about Andre the Giant. But he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, so that's why they put him on. So it doesn't seem like he can really be trusted about anything he's saying here. I there's certain things I know he's telling the truth for. But when he's doing it about like your Bret Hart's and your Shawn Michaels and your Mick Foley's, you know the only reason he's he's telling the truth is because most of what he's talking about is common knowledge. Right. So he has right. to tell the truth on that. So, you know, there's that. But I thought Rosenberg came out the best. But anyway, the point of that is you get the feeling with the Ultimate Warrior, they had to go with people who were nine years old when he was when he was big because everybody who worked with him hates him. So you couldn't use those types of guys. So that's telling in and of itself. And then you look at the dark side of the ring one. The name of the dark side of the ring warrior special was called Becoming Warrior. So the fact that it focused so much on the early portion of his career and the first wife and everything, I get it. But then the last five minutes of the documentary kind of felt like it was speeding through the last 13 years and trying to cover 13, 15 years worth of stuff in five minutes. So that felt a little rushed to me. So I honestly thought the biography one was more well done than the Dark Side of the Ring one. I don't know about you on that. Well, the biography had twice as long. I mean, I... I, Oh, yeah, very true, very true. I I, I was shocked when I... I mean, I, I mean... I know from past knowledge that Dark Side is only an hour, and with yeah. ads, it's forty-five minutes. But yep. when I was watching that one today, I said, "Wait a minute, this is forty-four minutes long. How are they going to get all this in?" So I definitely, I, I definitely agreed with you on that. I think the reason, though, they, 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 they focused on the early part of his career was because I think uh, Jim Cornette was in Memphis. And um, I think he kind of had a lot of knowledge of the Jerry Jarrett's and, 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 and sort of that line of what the ultimate warrior was doing. So it's, it's possible. It might've just been a knowledge um, base. Well, I wanted to lean that way. I'll go one further with you on that because it wasn't just Jim Cornette. Correct me. Jeff Jarrett was on this too, if I'm not mistaken, right? They had a couple guys from his early days, those Memphis days, and yeah, like they, the Jake, like not that it was from the Memphis days, but they even got Jake Roberts in this saying that he was going, he was waiting at the Hall of Fame ceremony to knock out Warrior with a roll of quarters. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you about that. How, I don't think he's telling how, the truth how, on that. No, 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 no. Not only that, how did Dark, how can Dark Side of the Ring show WWE footage and also the backstage Hall of Fame stuff? I thought that was totally because it's like when I, when I used to watch other Dark Side of the Rings with 
you know, with, you know, the Montreal Screwjob, they never showed any WWE footage. They always well, showed, like, animations. Or, like, do, you see, do you see, yeah, but do you see the way that they're showing the footage, they're making it look like you're watching an old VHS tape? Kind of, yeah. It's, okay. I mean, is that how they get away with it? That's how they get away with it, because you can use it through the Fair Use Act as long as you transform the footage in some way. Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't. Yeah. I did not know that. Got yeah, it. no. I'm. I, I'm fairly certain that's true. You have to change the footage in some way, and then you're allowed to use it under the fair use doctrine. But it is different. Like it is different. I've never yeah. seen Dark Side do that before. Um, well, they've done sure it. They they've they've yeah, done it. it pretty consistently. Like if I'm not mistaken, throughout their three seasons, there's been footage of certain events like obviously they do their um their set pieces and their reenactments or whatever you want to call it there they do that but they do throw in footage like i remember the um the one they did on macho man and miss elizabeth there was footage from certain events okay yeah it wasn't it wasn't long like i don't think you're allowed to use the clips like you can't show three minutes worth of clips if you don't have the permission, you can only show like 10 seconds or something of footage. Like it has to be under a certain time period. Like you, you can't go Got more it. than like 10 or 15 seconds or something like that. So they've done that before. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyway, what, what else were you going to say? No, no, I was just going to say it was, it was, it was, it was definitely different. Um, I definitely agreed with you where they, it was very difficult watching the early parts and then, and then them showing WWE and then, yeah, the last third, the last 13 years, just a quick five or five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, there was no WCW, uh, but look, I, you know, the thing that I did like about it is that Jim Cornette, whether you like him or hate him, he told the truth and yeah. he's been telling that line about the ultimate warrior for 30 years. Oh yeah. Been, been saying it for 30 years. So it's like, I could sort of, I could sort of respect him for that, and and when when I was watching the '96 footage of Ultimate Warrior splashing Triple H, basically killing him, I was going back to that, and I said, "Yeah, I was like watching that," and then I'm like, "Yeah, that was cool," and then like two two or three weeks later, you're like, "Yeah, this wrestler, yeah, Ultimate Warrior is not really that good." I was well, reexamining like when I was 12 years old. <laughs> well, here's the thing. That character was definitely made for kids because I didn't watch WrestleMania. What was that? WrestleMania 12? Uh, which one? Triple H? Uh, the, yeah, Triple H. That was WrestleMania that 12, was 12, right? Yeah, that, would, that, right. that was 12. I didn't watch WrestleMania 12, but I watched the In Your House the month after that. It was uh, in your. It was um, Kevin Nash's last uh, pay-per-view appearance on WWE TV. It was the match between him and Shawn Michaels, good friends, better enemies. And Warrior was on that taking on gold dust for the intercontinental championship a match that he won by count out and it was the first time i had ever seen ultimate warrior and i remember being into it thinking this guy's crazy this guy's nuts this is awesome he takes the cigar he makes it look like he's gonna chill with gold dust and marlena and then he takes the cigar and he burns it in gold dust's hands and hits him with the shoulder block or whatever and it, it was ridiculous but i remember liking that at the time and i remember the couple of interviews i saw yeah all right what he said made no sense but like for a 13 year old i was kind of into it but what these guys all said is you know all right when you're a kid that works for you 
But then when he gets to where he's going, it loses his appeal after a while. And I totally understand that one because the difference for me and you and me are the same. Obviously, I think I think you watched a little. I think you went back and watched stuff a little bit more than I did. Like I never went back and saw the WrestleMania six match. I never saw a lot of Ultimate Warriors big stuff. I don't I don't know if you did, but. Seeing him in 96 and then him coming back to WCW run in 98, you, you could just tell it wasn't the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. You were into it for like a minute and a half, and then it was just like, all right, I think I'm done with this. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the funny, the funniest thing Ultimate Warrior said in 98 when he came back in WCW is if you go back and watch the clip, um, he goes, um, um, uh, oh man, it was. Brutus, it was Brutus. Brutus. The disciple. Oh, I get it right. It's the, the disciple. disciple. The disciple. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it was disciple. And Ultimate Warrior said, "And this must, and this must, and this must be your barber." And like, right. yeah. Nobody let like nobody the, the the crowd didn't get it, but 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 like you know the people who knew that that was Brutus the Barber Beefcake were laughing hysterically. I was laughing yeah. hysterically. Yeah. But it just it it. But it just didn't land. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can tell. I can tell you right now. Like I knew who Brutus Beefcake was at that point. He totally changed his look. So it took me a minute to realize. Oh wow, that's Brutus Beefcake. Yeah. I didn't realize. So yeah, but I remember the line because that's when I started thinking. Is it? That's Brut- Holy shit! That's Brutus Beefcake. I didn't realize. Okay. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Um. All right, we'll keep going here, though. So that's The Ultimate Warrior. I'll give you a couple minutes. Like I said, the Booker T biography is the only one I did not see. I'm assuming you saw that, though, right? I did, yeah, I did. What would you think? I thought I thought it was a good one. I liked it because um, I didn't really know a lot about him. I mean, I saw him wrestle at WCW. I really, really liked his WCW days with Harlem Heat and his sure. older brother. Sure. Um, I really liked all that. Um, I didn't really know. I didn't. I didn't really know much uh, about his family, so it was nice, kind of learning that new stuff, like learning about where he, where he came from. Um, it was a terrible situation. I, I, mm. I think his, I, I think his son is in jail now, which is terrible. Oh, that's he, horrible. You know, I didn't he, know that. His, his, his. I, I think, I, I think his oldest son is in jail. His father wasn't really around, so he was trying to be he. He was kind of telling the story that he was trying to be what his father wasn't. And then he he was on the road because he was trying to make money. And then his older son got into the wrong crowd. And the older son is in jail right now. But then he ended up remarrying and he was married to the queen. You know, that whole storyline where he was King Booker and Queen. Yeah, whatever, Charmel. Whatever. Charmel. Yeah, Charmel. And then they ended up getting married. And now they have two smaller kids. Mm. So... They were just explaining how he's trying to do everything right. Um, I liked it because I didn't really know much about his background. I knew about his wrestling. They didn't. They didn't really touch the 2000 Ash at the Beach when he became actually the champion, even though he lost prior to that pay per view. But well, I don't see WWE touching any any of the WCW. If if you think about it. Because I, I know you thought they were going to go into it the last time we spoke about this. Yeah. But if you think about it, so much was going on that really didn't concern him. Like right. that whole Hogan and Vince Russo thing. Like he was the guy who was supposed to win the belt. 
but he almost took a backseat to the big part of the story, which was what was going on between Russo, Hogan, and Bischoff. So right. I get that. I get that you don't necessarily want to show that because that's all that that's not really part that Booker T's not the main character in that one. He's a he's a side character, which is a shame because he should have that should have been a seminal moment for him winning the the championship for the first time. But of course, also around that time was when I think the title changed hands like 15 times over the course of a year. And yeah, Vince and terrible. Vince Russo and David Arquette both won the title during that time. So yeah, it definitely is not something you want to show. Oh, and we'll bring up David Arquette here. I feel the need to go back to the Nick Gage episode because there is a part in the Nick Gage episode, and I wasn't even aware of this. He had a match with David Arquette. Ow. Where he sta- he stabbed him in the neck. And it, if it was like a quarter inch one way or another, Arquette could have died because of this maniac. Was Arquette, was David Arquette a wrestler? A pro wrestler at the time? Well, he, he in the early part of, of the last decade, the 2010s, he had been hearing how big of a joke he was for like 10, 12 years by that point. And he wanted to give wrestling a shot to prove, to kind of redeem himself. So he steps in the ring with Nick Gage, not knowing anything about Nick Gage. Jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it did not end well. It did not end well. And Arquette even says, like, the clip that they put on the... uh, on the trailer was I was in over my head. Yeah, you were, buddy. Yeah, you were. So I, I'm sorry. I brought that up just because we, we said our cat's name. I felt the need to mention that. So, But overall, the Booker T one was a good one. I really liked it. I thought it had a great I, – I thought it was put together really well. Had a great beginning. Really, really showed his life. Really kind of transitioned. They had a great scene with him and Steve Austin fighting in the supermarket. That was absolutely hysterical. I I actually hadn't watched wrestling at that point. I kind of dropped mm. off. I, I was, was in college at that point. I was in college at that point, that so hysterical. I only saw clips. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I really like how they how they framed it, where it's like you know he came back to WWE and like he was okay for a little while. Then he kind of dropped off, and then he kind of made of and then he. And then he like kind of made a resurgence when, when actually they made him the King Booker angle. And that really like, that really brought him back um, into the spotlight because it's like for WCW, which should have us spotlighted him as a singles wrestler for a really long time. He Mm kind of took, he kind of took the back seat to the big guys, you know, the big muscle ego guys and, WCW where he was mid card, but he should have really gotten that push much, much sooner. And yeah, the way they kind of framed it was it's like WWE was giving him that spotlight now that he should have had a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was it was definitely a, a nice way to frame it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll say this, and I, I had mentioned this last time uh when we talked about Booker T. Um, I had mentioned this last time when we talked about Booker T. I loved him in WCW, and then he gets to WWE, and I really didn't like the way he was used right off the bat. I thought because he was a WCW guy, they're kind of making him look like like a joke. The supermarket thing, as funny as that was, I kind of hated seeing Booker in that 
point of view. You know what I mean? Because it's like, dude, this was one of the best pure wrestlers WCW had. He's a guy worked night in, night out. And now he's got the guy getting the shit kicked out of him by Stone Cold at a fucking supermarket. Right. That that bothered me a little bit. That bothered me. Um, and then he had the nice run with Goldust and everything. He found himself in the NWO at one point in 2002, which made absolutely no sense. Um, and then he goes back to the team with Goldust and everything. And um, then you mentioned the King Booker. By the time the King Booker storyline came around, I was already out. I was already done with wrestling. And I, I just never liked Booker T as a bad guy. I liked him. I thought he was a better face than he was a heel, me personally. But it was great to finally see him get some sort of spotlight. And I, like I said, I didn't watch this one, but around the time he got inducted to the Hall of Fame, WWE Network had a, I think it was a WWE 24-7 special that I watched, and um, it went into his early life. Him and, him and Stevie Ray, his brother, actually had a falling out. They didn't speak for like five years. So, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, it was it was bad, but they got back together. I think Stevie Ray was actually the one who inducted him in a ceremony. And then, of course, two years ago, Harlem Heat gets inducted in the Hall of Fame as, as well. They should because they were no, a great definitely. tag team. Yeah. So I, I know oh, oh, at least I mean, it would have been five. very it would have been very interesting to see that tag team in WWE around that time when you had the new age outlaws and you had the acolytes and you had the Hardy boys, edge and Christian Dudley boys, um, a few other teams that have kind of gone under the radar over the years, but to put Harlem heat with those level tag teams, that would have been very interesting to see. You know what I mean? Good music could have been made. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the Booker T one. And then the, the last two biographies that have been shown, um, Shawn Michaels and Mick Foley. And Shawn Michaels, listen, we both grew up during Shawn Michaels' heyday. And I don't care what anybody says. Like I, I know Rosenberg said that um, you could make the argument that his second run when he came back from the back surgery was better than his initial run. And I, I don't know if I agree with that statement. Uh, I think there were times where it was just as good. There were definitely matches he had that were just as good as anything that he did in the first half of his career. This is another one I liked because as much as Shawn Michaels is WWE tried and true, nobody's pulling any punches when it comes to Shawn Michaels. Everybody knows the deal. Dude was a drug addict from about 94, 95 through 2002 he was an asshole backstage everybody hated him but everybody put up with him because he was one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time and when you got him out there as a wrestler nobody wanted to work with anybody more than Shawn michaels because you knew it was going to be a quality match no matter who the opponent was and uh, mick foley has always talked about the match that he had with Shawn michaels and i think it was mentioned in this documentary uh, or maybe it was the Foley one, uh, the, the mind games, in your house mind games, Shawn Michaels against Mick Foley. He always talks about that as one of the best matches of his career. So I, I, I've always been a big Shawn Michaels guy, obviously, when we were kids. No internet, so you, didn't, you, you had heard rumblings, but you didn't know the whole deal with Shawn Michaels. So we're able to look at it as a different perspective than a guy like Jim Cornette, who acknowledges that he's a great talent. Couldn't fucking stand the guy. Couldn't stand the guy. So we have a different perspective on that one than someone like Cornette has just because we didn't deal with it every day. 
what did you think of it? I um, I like Shawn Michaels. Um, I'm always going to hold the Montreal screw job against him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, so, I, mean, I mean, listen, if you if you believe the story, it's not even him. Because remember, remember the the story that has been circulated through the years. Triple H and Shawn Michaels go into Vince McMahon's office. Vince tells them he don't want to drop the belt. And Triple H is the one that says, fuck that. If he don't want to do business, we'll do business for him. Right, right. And that goes from there. And Shawn Michaels, I believe it when, yeah, I believe it when Shawn Michaels says he never wanted to go along with that. You know what I mean? I mean, look, I, I thought the documentary was good. I thought it definitely, I mean, it, 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 it the, I didn't really learn anything new because sure. pretty much like you said, sure. it, it's like, this was all real time for us. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, it was interesting to sort of, um, it was interesting to see, you know, cause I didn't, I mean, I figured it was something that, you know, that, that, that Sean did. I remember in '93 when he was actually the Intercontinental Champion. And then oh, sure. On, and then they announced on Raw that he didn't. He he wasn't defending the title enough, so he's going to get stripped of it. Right, and right. Razor Ramon ended up being coming the champion, and then they yeah. had a whole feud with the ladder match. Me as like ten was like, oh, okay. Shawn Michaels is not the champion anymore. But it's like to hear that he tested positive for a drug or steroid. That that kind of closed the loop for me on that. I figured it was something like that. Me well, now, they've, 37, they've, realizing they've t- that. Yeah, they've, they've told the story <laughs> before. This is not the first time I've heard the story. And Sean has said this, and truthfully, I believe this because if you think of his drug habits, you have to believe if he had the opportunity to take steroids, he probably would have. He denies he ever took steroids. And I'm sorry, he never got jacked like guys who took steroids. Like if you remember him in 93 compared to how he would look in the future, he was actually pretty chunky if we're being honest. So yeah, yeah, I, I believe him when he says he didn't take steroids there and that's why he didn't give definitely took steroids. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, triple H (laughs) definitely did. But if you remember correctly during the time that triple H did, that's when Sean was hardcore in his own drug addiction. Cause that was after 98 and obviously, Shawn Michaels was gone from WWE except for sporadic appearances for four years. So they had kind of, you know, obviously they were still in touch with each other, but they had kind of started to go their separate ways by that point. Right, and yes, right. Triple H, Triple H hit the steroids hard. We all know this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But keep going, though. I don't know if you no, had anything I, else. I, um, I, you know, I thought it was a good one. I thought it showed a I, I. I thought it went through his life pretty well. Um, I don't know if I agree. I think I agree with you. I, I don't necessarily know if I would agree with Peter Rosenberg that the second, uh, you know, time that he came back was better than the first. It was mm. probably just as good. I mean, oh, sure. I, mean, I, I mean, I, I hadn't watched wrestling for a very long time, but then I found out that Shawn Michaels was coming back. I did watch that Triple H Shawn Michaels match in 2002. So I did I, actually. I'll tell that you was this. A damn good I, match. I, that was a really good match. Yeah. No, um, I was getting ready to go out to hang out with some friends of mine, but my brother stops me and goes, dude, Shawn Michaels is coming back tonight. It's SummerSlam 2002. Shawn Michaels is coming back, take on Triple H. I'm like, oh, that's tonight. So we we each split it. We paid like 20 bucks a piece. 
And the only thing we really wanted to watch was the Shawn Michaels Triple H match. It's actually a pretty good pay-per-view. I think Mysterio was on there at some point. There were some decent matches, but we were just waiting for that match. And the first 10 minutes of that match to see vintage Shawn Michaels come back after a four-year absence, that was fucking incredible. That was, was fantastic. Cage, right? Huh? That was in a cage, right? No, not that one. That was one of the, oh, that was, that was, that was like, that was either the second or third match. Cause they had like a series of two or three matches. That being the first one, the SummerSlam match. And at some point, I think it was the third match was when Michaels wound up winning the title. But yeah, no, that was later on down the line. They don't do like AEW and start off with the, with the match that is normally the blow off match. You know what I'm right, talking right, about, right? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. They don't give you blood and guts as the first match. That's a buildup. You build to that match. That's your blow off match. That's not the match you start That's the feud off with. That was a non-title match. That first match back because Michaels won, but he didn't win the title. I don't think. I don't think Triple H had the title at that point. I thought it was a non-title. Oh, all right. Um, I mean, it definitely was, but I don't think Triple H had the title at that point. I got to look it up. I that don't. Was 19, that was nineteen years ago, Mike. Trying yeah, to figure but, that one out. <laughs> well, you know that's what Wikipedia is here for. That's what yeah. Wikipedia is here for, cousin David. Yeah, so true. give no, me one I second. Know. No, no, no. I was just, I was just saying. I, I'm. I still can't wrap. I still can't wrap my head around that two. That two thousand two was nineteen years ago. I'm. I'm. I'm mm. still trying to figure that one out. Brock Lesnar and, and Brock Lesnar took on the rock for the championship that night. Triple H was not the champion. This was okay. okay. I don't think I watched this match when it happened. Cause I'm pretty sure the only thing I cared about was Shawn Michaels versus triple H, but no, the Brock Lesnar versus the rock match. That was the match that they did these hype videos that showed Brock Lesnar running five miles with a 50 pound log tree stump log over his fucking shoulder and running five miles oh shit oh god <laughs> i remember watching those promos and thinking this guy's on human yeah listen to, listen to this card though for this SummerSlam. kurt angle defeats ray mysterio rick flair taking on chris jericho edge taking on eddie guerrero christian and lance storm taking on booker t and Goldust. rvd taking on chris benoit Undertaker versus Tess. Obviously, that's nothing, but that's that's before you get to Shawn Michaels and Triple H. That's ten. That's ten times better than what's on now. <laughs> oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So, all right. Um, the, but the point you were making, Shawn Michaels had some really good matches in the second run. Like there was that. There was that um, WrestleMania match between him and Chris Jericho that I remember watching at a at a buddy's dorm room in college. That was a pretty good match, I thought. There were a couple other good ones sprinkled in, and then obviously tanned his career against The Undertaker in those two matches the way he did. I mean, you want to talk about a storybook ending. And the fact that he's one of the only guys you could look at, and I'm going to ignore that tag team match, him and Triple H against Undertaker and Kane, which was a certified disaster. I'm going to ignore that match for a minute. The fact that he's one of the few guys to say, I'm retiring, this is it, and stick with it, you know that doesn't happen very often. No, I mean, no, and it doesn't. But, but you know, I, you know, in the second half of Shawn Michaels' career, whatever he wanted to do, he did. Mm -hmm. uh, he, probably, he probably made a ton of money in his first half. So he could kind of pick and choose. Yeah. What he sort of wanted 
to do. Um, um, and I don't want to bring Bret Hart back into it, but I did like that him and Bret Hart kind of buried the hatchet in 20. That was January. Okay. So I got to, I got to tell you this that story. Was great. I got to tell you this story of how I saw this and I'll say this now. Um, so I used to indulge in the herbal supplements back in the day. And um, that night I was going over to my dealer's house to, to, to uh, get some of the herbal supplements. And he's like, dude, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels are about to get together in the ring. What? Are you serious? <laughs> so he he had the, the, um, the live TV that you could rewind and everything, which was still new to me at that point. He rewinds the whole segment and I stay there and I watch this whole thing. And I'm just like, holy shit. It was so cool to see those two back in the ring together. And I did not expect because I was not paying attention to WF stuff at all at that time. So I had no I, yeah. I, I had no idea that was happening at that time. So he blindsided me with that one. But to be able to see that, I mean, that Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels were my two favorite wrestlers pre-attitude era. They were the two best. So 97 was a hard year for me, deciding who to root for between the two of them. So to see yeah, them, yeah. yeah, to see them back on the same page, that was cool. And they've given interviews since where they've acknowledged that they've stayed in touch. The, the burying the hatchet was real on both their parts because as much as Shawn Michaels was the prick, Brett has even admitted, yeah, I probably didn't do the right thing either. So that was always cool to say. But I'm sorry to interrupt. I had to tell that story. No, no. I, that was really it. I was, done. Yeah. I, I was, I was just going to point that out. And, and you know, I, I thought it was a good one. I thought mm -hmm. it was good. I, but, but nothing – I didn't really hear anything new. So I guess it, 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 didn't, sure. it didn't really, it wasn't my favorites. Cause like, I kind of like, I kind of like the ones that I, that I wanted to hear something new. Um, mm. So it didn't really do it for me in that regard, but it was well put together. Yeah. But I'll tell you this, it kind of throws cold water on your theory that um, they really don't want to give Bre what was it you they do they don't want to acknowledge Bret Hart at all because we talked about how Bret Hart was left out of the Stone Cold one, but he did make an appearance in the Piper documentary, if I'm not mistaken. He was in the Shawn Michaels one. They're doing one on Bret Hart this week. I'm more as much as we talked about with that savage one that WWE is going to show what they want to show. That one came off as more of a hit piece and made the idea that WB is holding a grudge against Savage made it more credible. I really think it's just a, it's just a question of I think it was just a question of time with that Stone Cold one, and that's why Bret Hart got left out of it. I don't think there was any malice on WB's part in terms of leaving it out, him out because if you do, first of all, if you got malice against Bret Hart, you're not doing a documentary on Bret Hart. That's number one. But also, if you're leaving him out of the Stone Cold one because of malice, you're not putting him in the Shawn Michaels one. You're not doing that. You're just leaving him out completely and giving just Shawn Michaels yeah. side of it. So that's what I got to say there. Um, but as you... are right. I, 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 right. I, listen, this Bret Hart one, it'll be interesting to see where they go on it. I don't think they're going to pull any punches with Bret Hart because they have no reason to. But Brett has also acknowledged his his role in the Montreal Screwjob. As much as we can say Brett was right for the way he was thinking, and you know, um, Brett has said that the reason why he didn't want to drop the title is because he had a 
he found out that they were going to have the Survivor Series match, and he goes up to Sean, and you've seen this. This was in the Dark Side documentary. Yep. Goes up to Sean and says, listen, I want you to know I'm always going to take care of you. I'm always going to respect you in the ring. You know, I'll take care of you. You don't got to worry about anything, and I'll, I'll do the honors for you. And Sean says, I appreciate you saying that, but I just want you to know I am not willing to do the same thing for you. And that was what made Bret Hart decide I'm not dropping the title to this guy in Canada. So, but there was that, but Brett has also acknowledged and the, the wrestling with shadows, they did a 10 year kind of anniversary thing. And they, they did a retrospective with Bret Hart. And he has even said, I wish I didn't take my character so seriously. So he's even acknowledged that he probably didn't handle that the best way possible. Well, I, you know, I think he was just hurt because. Oh, sure, sure, sure. He, 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 he felt like, you know, he could have went, he could have went to WCW for three, for $3 million a year. He turned it down because he was trying to be the loyal person. Yeah. Um, and he chose Vince and then Vince turned around and said, well, we really can't pay you anymore. And it's like, you know, I, I, I think people do things because they're acting out. He tried mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And I think, and I think that really hurt Brett and, you know, what, what goes around comes around and, and I'll, you know, and, and even Jim Cornetta said this, you know, Jim Cornetta said, well, if we actually would have known that, um, you know, Shawn Michaels was going to be leaving the WWE in four months, uh, you know, after winning the title, we, we may have picked Brett instead of Shawn. It's possible. It's possible. It would be very interesting to see Bret Hart in the Attitude Era, considering what was going to go on over the next two, two, three years with their move into the Jerry Springer type environment and how Bret Hart was adamantly against that. So it would have been interesting. But the other thing Jim Cornette points out, because they always say in these documentaries, we had to get the title off Bret because we didn't want him showing up on WCW programming with our title belt. Right. Bret Hart made an agreement with Vince McMahon that he would not show up on WCW Nitro with the title belt. Right. And everybody believed him because it's fucking Bret Hart. Bret Hart says that you can trust Bret Hart on that. And Eric Bischoff wouldn't have put the belt on either. But what, hang, on, hang on a second. You could believe yeah, Bret Hart when he says that. Sorry, David. You can believe Bret Hart when he says that. But the problem is he was going to work for Eric Bischoff. And the idea that Eric Bischoff could be trusted not to do something like that. That's what Vince had the problem with. It wasn't that, and this is a direct quote, it wasn't that Vince didn't trust Brett, but he damn sure didn't trust Eric Bischoff. And why the fuck would you trust Eric Bischoff? Sorry, That's David. A Vince Russo. That was a Vince Russo quote, right? No, that was a Jim Cornette. That was a Jim Cornette quote. Oh, the, that was Jim Cornette, right? Yeah. I, oh, okay. No, but, but see... Vince is wrong there too because Eric Bischoff did that. Eric Bischoff did that with Alondra Blaze, right? And got sued. And Eric Bischoff has said, "I would have never done that because I did not want to get sued again." Legal basically told me that I was on a short leash and I could not ever do that again. I don't so, think he got. Wait a minute. Know. I don't think he got sued for that. I don't listen. WWE sued WCW for a few things around that time. I don't think that was one of them though. They sued him. For when Scott Hall came out and Kevin Nash came out and nobody called them by their names. And Scott Hall was just like, you know who I am. 
Right. They sued them for using the likenesses of, of Razor Ramon and Diesel and playing it up like they were still those characters. That's what they got sued for. I don't think the Alundra Blaze thing was what they got sued for. I thought WWE might have done something. Because, yeah, you, because might, I, you might be right. I'm not 100%, but I did not think that was one of the, the things in the lawsuit there. Because I, I was listening to 83 Weeks, the podcast um, with what's his name? Rick Flair's... Uh, Conrad, Con- Conrad yeah, Thompson. Yeah, yeah, and then Eric... Eric Bischoff was saying something like, I, I wasn't going to put the belt on TV again because I got so much blowback. Maybe it was just blowback. Maybe it wasn't suing, but he just got a lot yeah. of blowback where sure. WCW, because technically WCW didn't didn't have its own legal. It was basically TBS. Turner. Yeah, yeah. Turner. Turner had, so it's like Turner, WCW had nothing. Turner had everything. So Turner basically said, don't do that ever again. You know, don't ever do that. You know, and Eric said he he would have never put the WWE, but who knows? Even if that's true, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because again, it's Eric Bischoff. He doesn't always tell the truth. Like right. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash had come out. <laughs> Scott Hall and Kevin Nash had come out and said that they they signed when they signed their contracts, they had favored nations clause, which meant that if Bischoff were to sign someone else after they signed those contracts to a bigger deal they automatically got raises. They had been saying this for 10 years, and Bischoff has tried to deny this. Well, if it's in the contract, just show it. But yeah, no, I've actually heard Scott and Kevin Nash say that, and yeah. I believe that, actually. I do, too. Yeah, <laughs> I do, too. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to move off of this one. But I, listen, we talked at the beginning with the Stone Cold one. Any one of these guys who they do a documentary of that we watched when we were kids we're not going to find out anything new. Right. So, and we had said, that's why the Piper and the Savage ones seemed a little more interesting to us right off the bat, because, you know, that the, they were before our time. Having said that, my favorite A&E biography so far, Mick Foley. That's the best one of these they have done, without question. <laughs> I loved that Foley documentary. I thought it was fantastic. And Cornette said this. And I agree with it. It just left you with a good feeling afterwards. I felt I felt good watching that. I, well, I love I love me some Mick Foley. We still got one left, Mike. We still got one left. Well, I know, but we're talking about the Foley one oh, right now. now. Yeah, right. no, we're oh, yeah, talking we're talking one. about the Foley one I, right I, now. Yeah, I like the Foley one. Um, I would still put I would still put the Roddy Roddy Piper and Savage ones ahead because only because the and. The Roddy Roddy Piper one had everything. It had a great story. I learned a lot about him and his family. They got everybody in his family to participate in it. Sure. So you really got a good mix. But but in terms of the current WWE wrestlers that I watched, the Foley one was probably the best one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I, I want to say one <laughs> thing that I forgot to say. Talking about the Shawn Michaels one, WWE put out this really great DVD around the time that Brett and Shawn made up. It is a sit-down interview called Brett vs. Shawn with the two oh, of them. In a, you've seen this? I've Jim seen Ro- this, yeah. Jim Ross is the moderator. It's an hour-and-a-half discussion where they go through their careers and the build-up to the screw job and everything. It is fantastic. It's fucking awesome. 
Shawn have- Michaels came off came off a little like he kept saying, "Oh yeah, no, I I kind of forgot that." <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you do that. You do that many drugs. I can believe you're going to forget certain things. Yeah, but yeah, no, I I know what you mean. He came off a little bit like, "Oh okay, you just you don't want to admit it, or you really forgot." Yeah, no, I I get what you're saying on that one. But um, I can believe he kind of forgot some things. I can believe it. I mean, look at the lazy eye. You know, he probably forgot some things along the way. No, yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, But anyway, to go back to the Foley one again, this is not one where it showed us anything we didn't know. But I the best and I thought this was the one that had the most relevant talking heads we've seen here, whether it was Bruce Pritchard, Jim Ross, Ric Flair who definitely did, you know he felt the way that he was talking about it. He said it in a much more um, constructive criticism type of way here than you know he has said about McFoley in the past because you know him and Foley didn't get along for a long time. Because oh, yeah. Fo- yeah, because Flair was pretty adamant that he looked at Foley as like a glorified stuntman. So to hear Flair talk the way he did in this documentary... You knew he wasn't pulling any punches, but you also knew he was talking about Foley with a modicum of respect that he didn't have 10, 15 years ago. So I liked seeing that. I liked seeing that. I liked knowing, all right, no, these guys have made their peace. And Foley even came out after the documentary and tweeted, had a great conversation with Ric Flair. We're cool. It's all good. You know, so the fact that these guys have kind of buried the hatchet a little bit, I like that. I like that. I thought that was cool. Um, but again, I felt it had the most relevant talking heads that we've seen on these biography specials. Um, Foley's brother was on it. There's another one. The whole family was on it. All of his kids were yeah. on it. Colette, his wife, was on it. Um, to see the matches that they showed, I thought, was was very good. Obviously, we all know about the Hell in the Cell. They showed, like, they didn't show the actual chair shots that The Rock gave uh, Mick at that um 99 Royal Rumble. I don't know about you. I was watching that Royal Rumble live. That yeah, was pretty. I was too. Yeah, that was pretty intense. And then I know we both have seen Beyond the Mat, where they show Colette and the kids at ringside watching this. And then a month later, Barry Blaustein, the director, brings the video over to Mick so he can see the reactions. And that's kind of where it hits him, dude. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this shit anymore. Well, if you watch most of the tapes back in basically the late early 90s and mid 90s and late 90s, they don't show you the chair shots anymore. If like you've noticed that the tape kind of. Oh, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. you should you you should go back and watch them take watch the matches where you know that the headshots are going to happen, that you never see it. The tape always skips. So, now, so, you, so you're telling me if I go to WWE Network right now and I go to that 99 Royal Rumble, I'm not going to see the chair shots? I don't think you will. I don't think you will because I've seen – I've I've watched a lot of matches online. They mm-hmm. won't show it. They won't show it. Wow. I, now, no I idea. don't know if that's on purpose. I don't know if that's on purpose. I, I don't know what that is. But you know what? If, like, if like you know, you actually go – you know, you – you actually go on the network. Let me know if it, if basically the video skips. I'm probably going to do that when we get off the air because you got me intrigued by that now. Yeah, <laughs> you got you got me. Like I haven't watched that match since I watched it that night. 
truthfully, because that's a, that's a hard yeah. match to go back and rewatch. Because the and he, he Foley said this in his second book. He didn't talk to The Rock for like three or four months after that because he was pissed at him. Like yeah. in, the, in this documentary, he talks about I have to shoulder the responsibility because it was my idea. Pretty sure it wasn't his idea for The Rock to hit him 10 times with the chair the way he did. But right. um, I think I, I, yeah, The Rock was probably just getting into it and making it look good. So the problem was a lot of this shit really was Foley's idea. It was his idea to go off the cage, as they said in this thing. So, but, um, yeah, I, the craziest thing about, to go back to the Hell in the Cell match, the craziest thing is you watch The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Hell in the Cell. They're, so, they're slamming each other on top of the cage. They're doing all these things, and the cage doesn't buckle, doesn't break at all. And then on this thing, you got the twist ties bouncing off the freaking cages as they're stepping on, as they're stepping on the panels and everything. And you could tell within you could tell within thirty seconds of that match that cage was going to give way. Well, nobody was ever. You never had two wrestlers start at the top of the cage. They probably never thought that that would ever happen. Well, Dude. I mean, you're right. You never saw them start That's at the top of the cage. Pounds right at the top. Sure, of the cage. <laughs> sure. But I'm I'm just saying, you know, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels did go up to the top of the cage and were up there for a number of minutes. So I, I, you look at the way that structure, the way it was, and they're stepping over everything and nothing's buckling, nothing's breaking. And then within five seconds of Undertaker and McFoley being on the top of the cage, they're walking over to the, to the spot where Undertaker was going to throw Mick off the cage. As they're walking, Mick's foot almost goes through the cage. Right, right. Yeah. So... That was um, poorly constructed, to say the least. But um, I'll tell you this. If you ever get the chance, one of the greatest things WWE Network has, because, you know, Mick Foley does stand-up now, right? Yeah, yeah. I did see that. They have a um, – it's an hour-and-a-half special. I, it was filmed 20 years to the day of that Hell in the Cell match. So it was filmed in 2018. And it's called Mick Foley, 20 Years of Hell, if I'm not mistaken. And it's him talking about his career, the Hell in a Cell match, how he felt about the match in the years following it, and how he feels about the match now. It is a fantastic set. It is funny. It is emotional. It's the whole thing. I love that thing. I watch it every few months if I can. Because I just, I just love Mick Foley, and I love listening to him talk. And what do we get in this documentary the first mention of any of these guys TNA careers because Foley talks about how he retired. He came back in 04 and 06, had the matches, uh, the tag team match against Evolution with uh, The Rock as his partner, the match against Edge, the match against Randy Orton, match against Ric Flair. And then he talks about how he couldn't get cleared to come back to WWE. So he goes to TNA, who didn't give a fuck about uh, wrestler safety at that point. And um, he talks about how, yeah, I should have stayed retired. Everything that happened after 2000 was basically a cash grab. I mean, like his honesty. Yeah, you got to respect the honesty. I mean, you kind of know it with a lot of the guys who are going, who went to TNA after their WBF runs, you know, whether it was Ric Flair, whether it was Booker T. 
Kurt Angle goes to TNA and actually was probably the most successful of all the WWF guys who went to uh, TNA. Maybe Christian, you could throw him in there. Maybe Jeff Hardy, but Kurt, Kurt Angle definitely had the longest uninterrupted run of any of those guys. But why did Kurt Angle leave WWE? In large part because his neck was too fucked up and WWE right. knew he was kind of going into addiction. They tried to stop it. Kurt wouldn't listen. So WWE released him and he goes to TNA who basically didn't give a fuck. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's you know, there's a pro and a con there. I, I mean, I definitely hear you. I mean, wrestlers, there there should be more safety standards. But, you know, if, like, you look at it on the other side, every wrestler in the mid-'90s who went, who basically went to WCW, you could argue it was for – it was basically a cash grab, whether it was Hogan, Savage, name any other wrestler who oh, went sure. to WCW. So, I mean I- – well, you Savage, know, I kinda... Savage, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on because I agree that it's a cash grab. But if you remember correctly, Savage McMahon did not want to use him as a wrestler anymore. He only wanted to use right. him as a commentator, and Savage wanted to wrestle again. He felt he had a couple good matches left in him. Well, Bruce Pritchard challenges that a little bit because, according to Savage, he didn't want to wrestle anymore. He he did want to become more of a booker. So. We're never going to know the truth behind I it. I don't. You said Bruce Pritchard said this? Bruce Pritchard said this, yes. I for, I know you like Bruce Pritchard. Uh, he's full of shit, in my opinion, and he's the only he's the only person I have ever heard say that side of the story. I have never heard that side of the story from anybody else on that. And you want to know Bruce Pritchard's full of shit. Okay, in this Foley one, he says, well, me and J.R., petition to bring Foley in and we went to Vince McMahon and then 30 seconds later Jim Ross yeah I went to Vince McMahon and Vince brought him in because he said to me I want you to know what it's like when a talent breaks your heart no mention of Bruce Pritchard in that one and I should mention Cornette was also advocating for Foley at the time but he doesn't care that he got left out well look Jim Ross at the time was uh uh talent relations so he mm-hmm. kind of dealt with the talent bruce pritchard i think i don't think was talent relations i don't well, think that's, was, I, I think was doing more of the the clips uh because Vince was doing the writing that part of the timeline is a little hazy because i don't remember exactly when jj dylan because jj dylan was originally the head of talent relations he left at some point. Pritchard takes over. No, no. J.J. Dillon left in 96 because WWE started cross-cutting when they started taking away the, the water bottle cooler. Remember? <laughs> yeah, remember that's that true. Line? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they, mentioned, they mentioned that in one of those Legends of Wrestling roundtables. So, yeah, no, yeah. you're right on that. Um, but I don't know if that was 96 or 95 because Foley himself – came in in early 96. I think he came in. It was one of those day after WrestleMania type deals. Um, Pritchard was head of talent relations immediately after Dylan left. And then JR took over shortly after that. Because I guess uh, Cornette described Pritchard as head of talent relations as Hitler. So take that for what you will. Pritchard never wanted to do it. Bruce Pritchard never wanted to do it. He was just temporarily there. Again, this is according to Bruce Pritchard, but um, mm-hmm. 
he never really wanted to be there. It was just going to be temporary. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Look, there's there's always three three sides to the story. Yours, yours, mine, and basically the truth. So, <laughs> I I got to be honest. Through no fault of your own, I hate that line. I hate that line. I have a personal reason why I hate that line. So I, I do apologize, Cousin David. It is through no fault of your own, you have stumbled uh, upon one of my least favorite expressions in uh, the English language. So sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> all right. So, all right. We're an hour and a half into right now, so I think we'll wrap this up. So, all right. So, well, actually, we're going to go back to the dark side of the ring, and we're going to mention this real quick because I know you haven't seen this. We talked about the Pillman, the Nick Gage, the uh, bank-addicted drug robber. We talked about Collision in Korea. We talked about the Ultimate Warrior episode. Uh, the oh, what, what was it called? I want to get the actual name for this Wesley episode. Smith. Well, Grizzly yeah, Smith. but In the Shadow of Grizzly Smith was the title of the episode. And this, of course, deals with the Smith family, Grizzly Smith, the father, Jake Roberts, Sam Houston, and Rockin' Robin as the children. And there's also another brother, and um, I can't remember his name. I want to say it was Richard or something. This was um, a really heavy documentary. And they actually put disclaimers at the front and the end of the episode that this this deals with pedophilia. Uh, because oh, Grizzly Grizzly Smith was a pedophile. Um, wow. He molested his daughters. Um, his he Jake Roberts got molested at the age of thirteen by his mother-in-law or his stepmother, whatever you want to call it. And when he tried to say something um, about it, she beat him with a wire hanger and a fly swatter. Um, so the, this is a pretty dark episode. Uh, to and, hear, go ahead. And all these people, and all these people wonder why all, why this family is all messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty intense, man. I mean, we've known about we've known about Jake Roberts' problems for a long time. You know, yeah. uh, beyond the mat, definitely brought Jake Roberts' problems into the forefront. But the Grizzlies, and this is another episode Cornette is is heavily involved in because he he kind of gives the history of the Smith family and Grizzly Smith as a whole. Cause Grizzly Grizzly Smith was at one point, the right hand man of Bill Watts, who obviously, you know, Cornette holds Bill Watts in very high regard as does Jim, right. Jim, uh, Jim Ross. I think even Pritchard holds him in a, in a high regard. Um, he was one of the original, you know, during the territory days, he was known as one of the most gifted wrestling minds in the country. And Grizzly yeah. Smith was kind of his right hand running um, the Memphis. Te- uh, was it the Memphis? I don't think it was the Mem- whatever territory he ran. I think Memphis was uh, the Jarretts and the uh, the Lawlers. The Jarretts, the the the, the Jar- no the the the, the Lawlers was uh, uh, no Lawler and the Jarretts ran that territory Memphis, together. Memphis, Memphis, yeah. Cornette was Smoky Mountain. Well, Smoky Mountain came much later. Smoky Mountain, actually, Smoky Mountain actually took over that territory from now. Was it yeah, North Carolina? I, I, no, was it, it, North was, Carolina it was neither. Carolina? It was Kentucky. Um, I don't. Jeez. You're going to make me look this up now. I, I'm going to. <laughs> I don't right, think ahead, I don't think Bill Watts was North Carolina. I don't think Bill Watts was North Carolina. 
maybe Atlanta. I don't even know if that's right. That can't be right. No. Um, didn't mid, mid South. Yeah. Mid South. WCW buy the territory from Bill Watts? Wouldn't that be Ed, well at one point Atlanta? Well, I don't think it was the Atlanta territory though, because it wouldn't have been WCW at that point. It would have been Jim Crockett Promotions that brought that. Uh, even more famous being pioneer promoter in the mid south area of the United States. His his base of operations being Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we were all wrong here. That's fine. So the NWA was not him. The NWA. Well, the you got to remember the NWA wasn't one promotion. The NWA was the governing body that kind of oh, tied right. all these promotions together. All these promotions, like you had Mid South, you had um, you had the Memphis Territory, which I believe was Continental at the time. You had Ole Anderson's promotion. Uh, you and I can't remember the name of that one. He had the Ole Anderson had the Georgia Territory, which he ran with the Briscoes. The Briscoes right. sold out Ole Anderson to Vince, and that's why the Briscoes. That's why Jerry Briscoe basically had a job for life up until the pandemic. Um, and, they, and they and Dusty and ran. They the all shared that belt, right? And then they all shared that belt, the quote unquote, the NWA belt, the WCW belt. Um, not during that time, not during, oh, uh, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about the territories. You're not talking about Vince's. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, you're kind of, no, the yeah, no, yeah, actually you're right on that, but it's not that they shared it. It's just that that belt would go from territory to territory. Whoever the biggest draw was would wind up getting it. That's why flair and you saw dusty have it. Dusty was the, I believe dusty was Florida, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, you, you had a number of these throughout it's hard to keep Got track. It. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the Grizzly Smith one is um is pretty intense. So it's definitely worth a watch, but it's not for the faint of heart. And um I will say Rock and Robin had a sister, and the fate of the sister is revealed in this. And I think Jake actually had mentioned the fate of uh his sister in Beyond the Mat, uh, but they didn't go into the details that they went into in this program. So um yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So, um, but I would definitely recommend watching it for anybody who, you know, knows what Jake Roberts was in the um, 80s and the 90s. So I would definitely recommend watching it. So to kind of uh, wrap this up here, that's everything that's happened so far. The last episode of the first half of the, se uh, the season of Dark Side of the Ring going to be next thursday it's going to be about the dynamite kid and he's another guy who you know he's revered for his work in the ring but there's not so many people who have good stories to tell about dynamite kid everybody he's another guy who's kind of universally known as an asshole for a lot of different things so they're going to talk about that and then this sunday on a and e the last biography they're doing for the wwe ones is bret hart So what do you say? I he's probably one of my favorite wrestlers watching. Um, mm. He was definitely, you know, I was like you, I was kind of tail end of Hulk Hogan. I was yes. 91, 92, more 92. So it's like when I started watching, like Bret Hart had just won the title from Ric Flair. So I definitely saw that storyline and it was just, it was great watching him because it's like, you know, you just valued what he did in base of the ring. Um, never 
never really hurt anybody. Um, yeah, I, 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 if I, he's definitely, he's definitely, and people are going to disagree with me, but if there's a Mount Rushmore, Brett, Brett Hart would probably be on it, according to me at least. Um, well, I tell you what, I want to, I want to continue that for a second because I've thought about this quite a bit and I want to ask you. I'm not asking for these are the definitive greatest four of all time. Your own personal Mount Rushmore of pro wrestlers. Who, who, which four would be on it? I could pick anyone from any era. I'm going to say the four that were meant the most to you when you were actually watching it. Like, it doesn't have to be a greatest of all time thing. Your own personal Mountain Rushmore. Like, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. My personal Mount Rushmore, the guys who I watched the most, who meant, to, meant the most to me when I was growing up, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Mick Foley. Now, I'm not saying these are the greatest four of all time. I'm just saying in terms of the era that I watched, those yeah. were my four. Because Ric Flair was no longer the wrestler he was in his heyday. He could cut a great promo. Same thing with Piper. They were great promos, but those and though they would definitely be in my top ten for guys who I watched during that time. Sting would probably be around there. Uh, Jeff Hardy would probably be around there. You know, Undertaker would probably be around there. But in terms of the four that meant the most to me, it's Brett, Sean, Stone Cold, and Foley. So with that as kind of your control here. Who would be your who would be your four? I would probably go Brett, Stone, Stone Cold, Undertaker, and Scott Hall. Razor Really? Ramon. Yeah, I like Razor Ramon. I always Ooh. liked him. So Brett Sean, Stone Cold, and Not Scott Sean. Hall. Huh? I didn't say Sean. Oh no, I who did you who Sean. did you say? Who did you say? Who did you I, say? I said Brett, Stone Cold, Undertaker, Undertaker and, and Scott Hall. Those that's, four. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I always loved Scott Hall myself. I thought he was great, too. It's it's a shame that, you know, he's one of the guys that, unfortunately, the personal problems really kind of overshadowed what could have been a great career. You know? But, but, but I always liked his storyline because he was – Never the champion because he never he never really needed that world title. No, I like when I loved the storyline, um, and I didn't really watch Raw that much Monday Night Raw because I never had cable, so I would always have to like catch up during Saturday mm -hmm. mornings. Mm -hmm. The Saturday morning superstars they would show what happened on Raw. Sure, I always like I I always liked when they actually turned him face and the Million Dollar Man tried tried to pay him off and he was like I don't make. I don't take no money from nobody. And then he went face and then started, uh, started helping, helping the one, two, three kid. And that was yeah. just, and then, and then that's when he won the title. And then um, he was kind of off mm -hmm. to the races. And I just, I always followed him. Yeah. That was right around the time I started watching wrestling. The first Monday night Raw I ever saw was Bret Hart versus Bam Bam Bigelow with Jerry Lawler up in the balcony, making fun of Bret Hart's parents. <laughs> That was the first. That was the first Monday Night Raw I ever watched. And Stu and Stu Hart loved Jerry Lawler because he. Oh just, yeah, Stu was was pretty old at the time, and he just loved being mentioned. 
He didn't yeah. care if it was jokes. <laughs> well, I know I I didn't know that one, but I always know that uh, Brett and Brett and Jerry did get along behind the scenes, which yes. kills me because it's it's funny. You want to talk about breaking the curtain in the nineties when I first started watching wrestling, Lawler. I hated Lawler because of that and uh, the Brett and Lawler feud. And I, you know yeah. that led up to the SummerSlam in ninety three. I didn't start kind of turning on Jerry Lawler until I saw the history between him and Andy Kaufman. That was the right. first thing that made me like Jerry Lawler. And then, of course, in the late 90s, Lawler kind of became a caricature um, doing commentary with JR. He was puppies and all that shit. So, you know, you had to love Jerry at that point. But, yeah, no, from 93 to about 97, 98, I hated Jerry Lawler. And then after that, after that, I was just like, all right, I get it now. So that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, no, that, I... Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the to the Bret Hart thing. Can mm -hmm. I just say one thing? Sure. About the Ultimate Warrior, I forgot to say. Mm. I I I did like I did. There's one thing that was that was really cool in like uh, the Ultimate Warrior A and E, um, which I didn't see in any other A and E biography. And you could correct me if I'm wrong if I missed it. But I don't know if you noticed when. Ultimate Warrior was doing the promos and they would oh. do a different take. You heard Vince saying, Warrior, from look, Hogan is is, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Gonna do it. Like like he Vince was saying something. I've never seen I've never heard or seen that where Vince was, you know, behind the camera coaching him what to say. That was cool. That was really cool. Um all right, you're definitely right that they they haven't done anything like that in any of the other A&E biographies. Yeah. I've seen things in other things that WBE has pointed out of Vince, like, acting out how he wants the guys to walk and everything. And, like, Cornette said this this past week on uh, Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Um, when uh, Fully debuted as Dude Love, Vince produced that entire segment and he was so into the walk and you got to start on the shoes and you got to just see the shoes coming through and everything. And like yeah. they've shown him producing that segment in, in things in the past. So you're right. The A&E biography is the only one they did that on. What did you think? I never remember. I feel like maybe I heard this story at some point, but the story that he flips out on a kid and the kid, kid's father happens to run a TV station, so Vince makes him do a video apology. What did you think about I, that? I, you know, that was the first time I ever saw that. Yeah. Um, or heard of that. Um, it's not, it's not surprising. Mm. Um, from all around, from Warrior, from Vince, from their kid. Um, you know, and, and that just that you know. When I was hearing that, I was thinking like, you know, when Vince, Vince, Vince probably did that because he probably went great. I just, I just made this guy beat Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan would probably never do, even though I'm not a big fan of Hulk. I mean, I, I respect what he did for the business. I'm not really a big fan because I don't really think he like could wrestle, but, but he could wrestle enough, but. Vince was almost pissed, probably pissed off at himself. Like, you know, Hulk Hogan lost. I made this guy beat Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan would never do that. 
now I got this mess on my hands. That, yeah. That's what I was thinking the first time. And I'm like, Vince is probably kicking himself. That's very true. And just to see Warriors disdain for doing the whole thing. Yeah, right. it's, it's like, dude, man, you're a character built for kids and you just flip down on a kid. He's making you do so. He's making you do something like, honestly, he could have just fired you for that because yeah. WWE was ge- geared towards kids. He could have just fired you for that. And this is your way to make it right. And you're just you're just totally being a prick about the whole thing. So, yeah, it was, it was just weird. It, it's just like wrestlers have to realize that the people buying the tickets are paying are paying your your salary. There was a story about Goldberg that he was only going to be he was only going to sign autographs for like an hour and the line was out the door. I remember he stayed, hearing that. He he stayed for 4 hours to make sure that everybody got a signature. Mm. I mean that's just something wrestlers got to do. I mean, you know, yeah. I I understand time is money, but these are your customers. If they actually stop coming, you're actually not going to get paid. <laughs> yeah. That's very fair. All right. We went a lot longer than I thought we were going to. And I had wanted to mention some of the other um, wrestling documentaries that have been out because I rewatched the Ric Flair 30 for 30 documentary that they did a couple of years ago on ESPN. I rewatched that recently. I wanted to bring that up, but um, I think we'll end it on this. So just to sum up, overall, I think these have been very good. I think we are both looking as much as we're going to watch the ones that come out next week and we'll enjoy them and everything, I think we're both looking forward to the um, the second half of Dark Side of the Rings third season. I know, oh, yeah. I know, yeah, we're both looking forward to the plane ride from hell. We're both looking forward to the United States versus Vince McMahon, the steroid trial. Oh, man. Yeah, those two right there. I'm I'm so looking forward to seeing how those things play out. And like I told you, they got Jerry McDivitt, the longtime lawyer of WWE, um, as the main interview piece of that episode. So it's going to be very interesting to see. And I think we all agree in a lot of these documentaries, Vince comes off looking like the villain. Vince ain't the villain in this one. The steroid one. Yeah, he's not the villain in no. that one. I, I just, I just listened to the Bruce Pritchard, uh, Conrad Thompson steroid trial, and it's about two and a half hours. It's a podcast, and, um, yeah, no, the, the government really overreached, really, yeah. really overreached. They had like nothing. Mm-hmm. They had nothing, and they tried to get him to plead. I don't want to go into it because we all want to watch it. But well, it, we got does, a few, we got a few months till it happens. To go to your point, though. The, the Dark Side of the Ring producers, when they were on Cornette, they said McDivitt won that case without calling a single witness. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because basically the government did such a piss poor job. They kind of, they actually proved the case for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good old nails. Good old, <laughs> good old nails. The guy Do you who... you know that story? Well, Do you know the is press he... examination story? I, I know a little bit about it, but I mean, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, there's a story out there that Vince was going to let him go. So he goes into his office and tries to wring Vince's neck. And yeah. then he goes to the government, testifies, 
And it was something he's trying to make it like he doesn't have a personal vendetta against Vince McMahon. And then five minutes later in the cross examination, he says, no, I hate Vince McMahon or something like that. <laughs> no, but he, the, the WWE's lawyer said, do you hate Vince McMahon? And, and the reason they said that was because the government lawyer said, do you have a personal vendetta against Vince McMahon? Nails, Nails said no, but WWE's lawyer said it the simple way because they guessed that Nails didn't, didn't know the meaning of that word. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, God. That, wow. So wow. Nails just, just said, yeah, no, no. I don't have a vendetta. That's horrible. That is so terrible. Wow. I Okay, I think we're ending it on that one. I think we're going to end it on that one. All right, that'll do it for us here tonight. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for sticking with us this long. Um, everybody on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Anchor. Once again, thank you for listening to us, and thank you to Cousin David for being here with me. Uh, to go through all these things. It's always fun talking about something that we don't always get to talk about on the big show, Sports Zone. Um, so, Cousin David, do you have any final thoughts? No, I always like doing these. Um, I'm looking forward to the Bret Hart one. Um, and I loved and I loved the Roddy Roddy Piper and like the Mick Foley, and I'm hoping WWE does more of them. I'd be nice. I mean, the truth is, as much as the idea of more of these is a, is a nice idea, you look at the ones they've gone here. I mean, who who else who they they did not cover here? The Would Rock? you want The Rock? That'd be interesting, especially if they could actually get The Rock for it. Um, who else? Owen Hart. That I don't think Martha would ever agree to that. No, I don't. I don't think British Bulldog. That'd be interesting. Well, I WWE is actually doing a series called WWE Icons on WWE Network. They've done Yokozuna, they've done Beth Phoenix, they've okay. done Rob Van Dam, which was what actually about Kane? what about Kane? I would love to see Kane about, would you be, know Kane would be cool. Kane, Kane is be, a mayor now. Kane is a mayor <laughs> like now. The mayor that in. It's like the mayor in. Yeah, go. Yeah, go ahead. Go like right in. Yeah, that would be cool to see. Um, the Rob Van Dam one was actually really well done. That is really worth a watch if you get a chance to see it. And I like the Yokozuna one too. They're doing Lex Luger, and they're doing the British Bulldog. So they they kind of are doing a biography on British Bulldog, even though it's not called biography. Um, yeah, they, I mean, huh? Do they? Uh, do they own the ECW um, line? Yeah, they have the ECW library. And they said, I, I, I would definitely love for them to do like, you know, a biography on just basically the ECW. And just well, they've to kind go of, through that. They've kind of done that before. Um, oh, oh, okay. It was around the time of ECW One Night Stand in 2005. They put out a DVD. It was like the rise and fall of ECW. Or it was something oh, okay. like that. It was, a, it was a retrospective. And the DVD so, sold so well that they wound up doing that, wound up leading into ECW One Night Stand. 
And it's, it's a very good documentary, uh, very good DVD, actually. I have it somewhere here. Um, so they've done things like that before. They've had roundtable discussions about ECW. Um, it would, I think it would be cool to do it a dark side of the ring type of way and not just look at ECW for what it was during that time, but look at how everybody talks about the influence that ECW has had. I'm going to sound like Cornette here. But you look at the way that ECW's influence has evolved over the years, and you look at how we've talked about this. The wrestlers of today seem to have taken all the worst lessons out of ECW and the Hell in the Cell matches and the tables, ladders, and chairs matches and all the shit that was blow-offs. And now they want every match to be like that, and it's so much different because it all looks so much faker than it did back then. I could see that. Yeah. So I think that would be an interesting perspective on it. I don't know that we'd ever get that, though, but it'd be interesting. All right, man. Cousin David, thank you very much. I am Mike Aglialoro, and we will see you all Tuesday night for the big show, Sports Zone.